This is The Doctor Is In, your bi-weekly podcast that discusses all things technical and not so technical. The Doctor Is In podcast is produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, and sponsored by DX Engineering, helping you shrink the globe. See their website at www.dxengineering.com. And now, here's your host, QST editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and the doctor himself, Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Hello and welcome to The Doctor Is In. I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY. And I'm Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Joel, I have a little surprise for you. Oh, good. A pleasant surprise. Now, we've been doing this since April 2016. Wow. Okay. So it's been not quite three and a half years getting getting that way. And guess what? According to Blueberry, now that's the company that hosts The Doctor Is In, they have all these statistics for us as far as who is downloading the episodes, or not who specifically, but how many people and so on. Well, this past week, we reached one million downloads. That doesn't mean we have a million people listening to us, but it means that... Well, there's pets too, right? Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> but we we've actually had a, a million downloads from wow. the site of the Doctor Is In podcast, which is just amazing to me. That may reflect the condition on the bands lately. Well, yeah, because <laughs> people have nothing else to do, so they figure, well, I'll listen to a podcast. But uh, but anyway, I thought you would appreciate. Well, that, that is very nice to hear, and I thought our listeners would have that. So let's get to our topic here, and that is coaxial cable. Always a popular one, but yeah. in this case, the question that always comes up is, what kind of coaxial cable do I need for a given application? Coaxial cable comes in all sizes, from the teeny tiny RG174 to massive cables, if you want to call them that, that really look like plumbing pipe. So what do we need, Joel? Well, uh, one way to answer that is you need the best you can afford. Oh, okay, then we're done. All right, well, and thank you for the doctor is no. Um <laughs> Yeah, I guess... Uh, now, just to back up a little bit, coaxial cable is designed to carry signals between sources and loads that are unbalanced with respect to ground. So it's important that you get the right category thing because there are other choices too besides coaxial cables. There's um, balanced line, yes, various true. sorts. Um, but coaxial cables are probably the most popular and most widely used for antenna feed lines in the amateur community. They have a particular design characteristic impedance called Z0, and typically that's 50 or 75 ohms, and occasionally you run into 35 ohm or 93 ohm cable, but not very often. For most ham applications, 50 ohm seems to be the, the right. sweet spot. Yeah, yeah it's, there, there are different reasons for the different um, impedances, but 50 ohms is typically used in, in RF applications, while 75 ohms is typically used in video and cable TV distribution. But either of them can be used for amateur applications, and uh, including antennas and other interconnecting cables, as long as the implications of the Z0 are taken into account. And that's fairly important because if you have a non-matched coaxial cable, you end up transforming impedances, and that can give you a little bit of a fit here and there. So, And Z0, by the way, you're talking about impedance, the char- what some people call the characteristic, characteristic impedance. Characteristic impedance, exactly. Right. What that means is if you put that impedance at the end of a length of, ca- of coaxial cable of the same, you know, that's matched to the impedance on the load, it's matched to the cable impedance, um, you'll measure the same impedance at the source when you look at it. So there'll be no reflections kind of right. thing. And it acts as if it's an infinitely long cable and it just stops the energy right there and it dissipates. If the impedance on the end of it is something different, there will be a reflection 
And uh, that doesn't necessarily cause loss, but it does cause uh, a difference in impedance at the source end, which can be a problem for whatever's delivering power to the coax, the uh, transmitter usually. So um, there are ways of dealing with that. But it's important to keep that in mind and be aware of it and deal with it. Because even if your antenna is perfectly matched on one frequency, chances are across the band it's not quite as well matched and you will have reflections and you'll need to either compensate for them or have a source that is less sensitive to that. Many transmitters will are happy uh, driving a 2 to 1 SWR, for example. Yeah. But, uh, but much higher than that and you can get into problems. Oh, yeah. And also there are the... The physical aspect. I mean, some cables are relatively easy to work with, some are not. I remember, for example, I don't mean to single them out, but LMR 600, the poor man's hard line, as they call it. Yeah. It was it was good cable, don't get me wrong, but uh, it was a bit of a bear to uh, route around the walls and the drywall and everything else. That's absolutely right. And there's a wide range of sizes, and, and they're all the same characteristic impedance, so they all will have that same effect we just talked about. Usually, the smaller the cable, the easier it is to work with, and the uh, more loss it has per foot. The loss will go up with frequency and will go up significantly if it's not properly matched. But occasionally, you know, the, the small ones, the one RG174 you mentioned, is about a tenth of an inch in diameter. That's very handy if you want to snake something through your car. And chances are the distances are short enough that, particularly at HF, it's not going to cause significant extra loss. Um, so it's very handy for that. But you wouldn't want to use that for a 100-foot run to a 6-meter antenna for example, because you'd have almost no power left when you got to the end of it. Or I'm imagining a 100-foot run at 440 megahertz. That would be imagination with what you'd get out the other end. I mean, you would get almost nothing. <laughs> you, would get, you would get your imagination out the other end. That's, That's right. <laughs> the bigger it is, and the, you know, there, there are big cables that aren't as good as other ones, but, but generally speaking, the larger it is, the less loss there is. And within any given size, there are different variations of characteristics that um, provide less loss or more loss. So it's still important to choose what you want that will have the appropriate amount of loss and the appropriate amount of cost to suit your needs. And um, it's important to have an indication of what the attenuation is at your frequency. And fortunately, almost all books on the subject, the handbook, the ARL antenna book, and also the websites of all the manufacturers, Belden or Times Wire, um, for example, will have the um, attenuation and power ratings for each uh, cable type. So it's important to look at that and decide how much you can lose. I mean, all cables have loss. You don't get out at the far end what you put in at the near end. And depending on how dear it is for you to lose power, a little bit of power, will determine what amount of attenuation you can tolerate. Now, I was going to bring up the subject of somebody who is out there shopping for cable, or they're considering it for their station. What would you say, for example, somebody who um, has put up a uh, multi-band dipole for HF bands in their backyard, maybe an 80 through 10 meter dipole, something like that. Uh, what sort of cable would work for them? I mean, in theory, they could run a very low loss cable like LMR 400 out to that antenna, but that might be overkill, wouldn't you say? Well, it depends on the length too, because if it's uh, 30 feet away, it would probably be less loss than, than absolutely necessary for HF. On the other hand, if it's um, 150 feet away, that might be a worthwhile uh, improvement, particularly on the high bands. If we just, um, I don't like to do a lot of numbers here because some people don't have anything to write down on while they're driving or whatever, sitting in the shower. Um, sit in the shower. But uh, well, you might sit in the shower. You, you might. You might write in the shower. Yeah. What the heck? But if we take, if we start with the uh, common quarter-inch cables like uh, RG58 um, at uh, 50 megahertz, six meters. 
it has a loss of 3.7 dB per 100 feet if it's matched, and it can handle 782 watts. Now, that 3.7 dB is significantly, you know, less than half of the power gets to the far end. And if you uh, want to run a full power, you can't without blowing up your cable. And uh, if it has any kind of an SWR higher than one-to-one, the power rating goes down and the loss goes up. So it's um, it's probably not a good choice no, for 100 feet. not a good choice at all. Feet, no. But, you know, if it's a three-foot jumper in the station, not so bad. You know, you're not going to lose that right. much. So there's, there's one that's a little bigger than RG58, a little more than a quarter inch is RG8X, which is quite popular. And that's not a official designation. So the thing you have to watch out for with that is that while RG58 should meet the specifications that the government has put in place for that kind of cable, because it's a military nomenclature originally, RG8X is not, and everybody can call their cable RG8X no matter what. So the amount of shielding, the uh-huh. laws, everything else can be different. Okay. But RG8X is quite popular and has slightly... There's somewhat less um, loss than RG58. There's an even lower loss of that LMR240, which is of the same series as your LMR600, which is even lower loss. But once you get to that point, if you want less loss, you pretty much have to go to larger cables. Yes. So uh, the next group that you run into and is probably the most second most common cable is uh, what used to be RG8 which was the standard 0.405-inch diameter coax that everybody got from government surplus after World War II. And uh, officially, that's been replaced with RG213, which is about the same. Yes. But the loss of that is about 1.3 dB per 100 feet at 50 megahertz. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. And it can handle 1,122 watts. So that's at 50 megahertz. And, of course, at lower frequencies, it can handle more power at less loss. And then the LMR400, which is the same size as RG8 or RG213, has a loss of less than 0.9 decibels per 100 feet. And it can carry 2,500 watts. Hmm. So for the same space and weight, you have a somewhat stiffer and harder to deal with cable that has less loss. But can handle more power. It can handle more power also. And there are a bunch of other uh, factors to consider. As we mentioned, a cable that is marked RG58 or RG213 should be fabricated to mill specifications and should have similar characteristics from manufacturer to manufacturer. But if you get something else that is not one of those kind of nomenclatures, like RG8X, you have to be very careful and look at the individual specs that that manufacturer provides. And usually there are web pages, and you can take a look at them, and hopefully there are web pages on the up and up. But uh, it's important to, to use cable from a um, reputable manufacturer. Otherwise, you might not get what you think you're getting. So the specs that you're looking at might not apply. Right. Another factor that's important is age. Coax that is more than 10 years old is suspect. Oh, <laughs> and uh, particularly, I have some of that. Yeah, we probably all do, and, and it's not necessarily bad, but particularly the older stuff, older than that, we get into an area where the outer jacket was not non-contaminating. I think all coax you get now has non-contaminating outer jackets. You ought to check on that, though. If it's not non-contaminating, if it's outdoors, what happens is the water gets into the jacket, the jacket kind of oozes into the shield and you end up with a kind of a black shield that doesn't work very well (laughs) after a while. So if it's an older cable that didn't do that, it's particularly important that you don't use that. And it it can look good from the outside, but... But be awful on the inside. But be awful on the inside. And you should check for attenuation with a power meter and a dummy load and and make sure that power comes out the other end. (laughs) Um, And even if it does, you can have problems in which the shielding is not as good even though most of the power comes out the other end, some of it will go through the shield because the shield doesn't work as well if it's contaminated. It sounds like you're warning people away from 
buying coaxial cable at Hamfest flea markets. Yeah, I think unless it, it looks really good and it um, has some a known history associated with it about its age and where it's been. I mean, if it's been indoors, sitting on a shelf for 10 years, it's a lot better than if it's been sitting in a pile in the backyard for 10 years with the weeds and things. So that's something to think about. And I, I guess I would just say, you know, if if you're putting a, investing a lot in a new antenna system, why not just invest in new, good quality, known quality coax so you get the benefit of your antenna system. It's, you know, you spend $1,000 for an antenna and $50 for coax. You may be better spending $75 for coax and, and getting the benefit, full benefit of your antenna system because if you lose a lot of power in the coax, the antenna just doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, coax is kind of a unspoken hero of antenna systems, or at least like Rodney Dangerfield, it doesn't get respect. Well, that's, that's true. I mean, it's just there. It looks like a snake in the grass or a, a hose going up the chimney or whatever. Yeah, people think, well, it's just a wire that connects my antenna to my transceiver. What the heck? That's right. Buy and, whatever I want. And, and you know how much power you're putting in the bottom. You probably don't know how much power is coming out the top. Right. There are a number of ways to find out. But the other thing is to keep in mind when you measure this standing wave ratio from the bottom where the transmitter is, there is lost the cable. The SWR that you measure at the bottom will be much better than the SWR at the top because of the loss in the cable reduces both the incident power and the reflected power. So the SWR meter doesn't really know what's going on. And it gives you a reading that reflects so to speak, uh, the, the um, situation that it sees, and it assumes that the reflected power is that due to the standing wave ratio, when in fact the reflected power is also the reflected power that you get from incident power being attenuated and the reflected power being attenuated. So if you have a real long coax cable, it'll actually act like a dummy load. I mean, you, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. and people, I've used it for that, for especially yes. BHF use. It makes a very good dummy load. Um, so, so that's something you can do with that old coax. You yeah. can make it into a dummy <laughs> load. Just cut the connector off one end and you're good to go. Now, another thing, some coax, but not all coax, is rated for direct burial, which can be very handy to go across your backyard. Yes. Keep it out of the lawnmower and so forth. Now, it's important to note that that means direct burial in the dirt or preferably in a layer of sand even, which is a little more gentle to the coax. Some people make the mistake of putting it in conduit, thinking it'll protect the cable. The problem with that is conduit typically will get um, filled with water from condensation. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have direct burial anymore. You have submarine cable. <laughs> submarine cable. Submarine yes. cable, but it's not. <laughs> submarine cable is very expensive. And uh, <laughs> if you have a cable that's going to be in water, it's, uh, it's not your usual coax that hams buy. It's multi-covered, very heavy-duty stuff. The um, outer jacket of coax is water-resistant but not waterproof, as first mm -hmm. watch people used to call it. So it will eventually permeate through and you'll have ruined coax. So don't put it in a conduit. Now you can get around that if you have conduit with holes in it and you're in sand with gravel below it or you carefully pitch it and have a, a receptacle at the end where all the water will run into. It can be done, but generally speaking, you don't just want to put it in conduit. The other thing is flexibility. Not all coax is flexible enough to put around antenna rotator, for example. Well, there you go, LMR 600. I don't know what that that's very stiff. Yes. Now, fortunately, the LMR folks times wire, uh, and there are other people that make similar cables. Belden makes uh, 9913 is like um, LMR 400, for example. The times wire people make a LMR 400 flex, which is designed to be flexible and has flexible copper conductors instead of the aluminum conductors in LMR 400. So it can make go around corner. The other thing is to be careful about coax with a foam dielectric, and this includes all RG8X cable. And there are some cable that are 
like RG8 but have foam dielectric. They can probably go around a rotator okay, but they have a minimum bend radius typically of a couple of, um, you know, multiple inches. So they can't be wound around toroid cores to be used as balance or chokes. They have to be without taking special precautions and making big turns and so forth. What happens with the foam is the, the strain on the center conductor causes it to migrate through the dielectric. And in the extreme case, it can actually short out against the shield. Wow. Usually it just uh, gets much closer and then it doesn't have the same breakdown voltage so that it will not handle the same power that you're expecting and so forth. So be careful about foam dielectric uh, cable. It is lower loss than polyethylene, uh, what's called solid polyethylene, um, which the standard cables are, but it has that one disadvantage that you're careful about. Well, Joel, let's take a break. We'll hear from DX Engineering and we will come back. All right, I'll be here. Our fellow hams have told us how much they love receiving the DX Engineering catalog. It's 132 pages of amateur radio heaven, packed with competitively priced equipment. You'll find everything from multiband Yagis to whip antennas, the latest bass transceivers to mobile radios, and every accessory under the sun. But the catalog only represents a small part of what DX Engineering offers. When you visit DXEngineering.com, you'll find thousands of items from trusted names like ICOM, Yesu, Kenwood, and Alinko. There's world-famous antennas from OptiBeam, E-Antennas, and M-Squared, Roan and American Towers, plus many more. And shop a wide selection of innovative DX Engineering brand products. They're designed and manufactured by our team of amateur radio enthusiasts for hams just like you. Plus, you get the fastest shipping in the ham universe, and shipping is free on most orders over $99. Experience ham radio heaven at DXEngineering.com. That's DXEngineering.com. And we're back, Joel. And this time around, <laughs> listeners are going to think that I made this up. But this was a question that I actually sent to you. Indeed. While we were having our many email exchanges about antennas. And in this case, I say, my 66-foot-long 40 through 6-meter off-center-fed dipole is presently at a height of about 25 feet, with most of it extending over my house. It seems to perform about as one would expect, but if I went to a fair amount of effort, I might be able to raise it up to 35 feet. Would the additional 10 feet of height be worth the trouble? Would I notice an improvement? And now you can give me what your answer was. <laughs> okay. Well, it all depends on the band. The significance of the height is not in terms of absolute uh, distance in feet, but it's a function of the fraction of or multiple of a wavelength. And the higher it is in multiples of a wavelength, the lower the first lobe of the elevation pattern will be. This is, we're talking about a horizontal antenna, which we're talking about. Yes. Now, the, if you want to have effective intercontinental long-distance propagation, you'll want to have significant signals at low elevation angles, perhaps in the 5 to 10 degree range to get far on a single hop. And that requires relatively high hor horizontal antennas, typically half wave higher, higher. And that won't put the peak down there, but that'll have more energy there than a lower antenna. On the other hand, if you're more interested in local and regional Regional communication, say within a thousand miles, you'll be better off with propagation that is headed almost straight up, which works best with a low horizontal antenna at quarter wave above ground and lower. Now, keep in mind that because you have a multi-band antenna covering 40 through 6 meters, with one antenna you'll get all of these. Yes. <laughs> you'll get some. The lower frequency <laughs> bands will have higher angle um, propagation. A nice mix. And the yes. higher frequency bands will have lower angle propagation. Now, this doesn't mean that lower horizontal antennas won't have any low angle radian. For example, on 40 meters, your 25-foot antenna will have an intensity of about minus 5 dBi at 10 degrees, while if you took it up 
to 35 feet, you'd have about two decibels more. So it's not that different on the low at the low frequency. No, end. not really. On the other hand, if you took it up um, to 67 feet to a half wavelength, you'd um, have about 8 dB more than you have at uh, 25 feet. Now, that's significant. That's more than an SU. Yeah. So that's that's why you might want to go a lot higher, but going 10 feet higher will not get you very far in that direction. So it's not worth it, really, for that. For, no. for 40 meters. In fact, it's probably not, 10 feet is probably not worth it for any... <laughs> for any meters. <laughs> yeah, really. On 20 meters, your uh, 25 foot is height is much closer to the half wave mark, which is about 34 feet. So if you start out with stronger, so you start out with a stronger low angle signal to begin with. At 25 feet, your intensity is a bit more than zero dBm, which is comparable to uh, many vertical antennas. Yeah. Example. While going to 35 feet, which is about a half wavelength, your intensity would be about three decibels higher. That's half a unit, half an S unit. Sometimes, but not often, making a big difference. If you're in a pileup trying to get through, 3 dB can make a big difference. Yes, it could. But uh, most of the time, people won't notice a three difference unless you're right at the noise level. And on the higher frequency bands, you are getting above half wavelength and height. Um, and going higher will still give you more or low angle radio going to 100 feet high or one and a half wavelengths on 20 meters will get your elevation peak right down to 10 degrees. But your pattern will be quite fragmented with many oh, yeah. nulls and uh, go up in different angles. So for most applications, it's really not that good. And the tricky thing about that is you'll, you'll do well for the signals that want to go out at 10 degrees, but at a the first uh, null, which I didn't notice what that was, but let's say it's 20 degrees or something. If there were signals coming in at that, from that elevation angle, you won't know they're there because you won't hear them. <laughs> right. be deep null. So if you have, you know, uh, half to three quarters of a wavelength is probably a better height for, you know, it's not, doesn't give you the most at the very low angles, but it gives you a more complete elevation pattern that gives you a lot of coverage at various angles. But on the other hand, you know, if it were 100 feet high, it would work really well on 40 meters. That is impossible, <laughs> but it, it, I can dream about it, yes. Well, I have trees that are that high. Lucky you. Well, some days. I mean, we just discussed <laughs> that yesterday during a power failure, a, a tree of that size went through a house across the street completely cut it in half. So, so you know, tall trees can be good, but... <laughs> to a point. To a point, exactly. And sometimes they're two-pointed and they just go right through. Well, thank you, Joel. I do appreciate it. If you have a question for the doctor, email us at doctor at ARRL.org. The Doctor is In podcast is sponsored by DX Engineering at www.dxengineering.com. Background music provided by Purple Planet at www.purple-planet.com. This podcast is copyright ARRL. All rights are reserved. Until next time, I'm QST Managing Editor Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, 73, and thanks for listening.